0: Only from rust
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text
0: chapter seven the boggart in the wardrobe malfoy didn't appear in classes until late on thursday morning when the slytherins and gryffindors were halfway through double potions he swaggered into the dungeon his right arm covered in bandages and bound up in a sling acting in harry's opinion as though he were the heroic survivor of some dreadful battle i'm matt potts
1: i'm vanessa zoltan
0: and i'm jackson bird and this is harry potter and the sacred text
1: Y'all, we are so excited to have Jackson Bird on our podcast again. Jackson is, of course, the author of Sorted and host of the podcast, Cool Stuff, Ride Home. And a you know regular guest on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. It doesn't say that on your bio, but it should.
0: <laughs> I think it's assumed,
2: right? It's just everyone knows.
1: Oh, got it. Yes. Okay. Well, Jackson, we're so excited to have you on as always.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on again. I'm, I'm excited to be here.
1: You picked such a good theme for us today, one that resonates, I think with everyone two years into the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and that theme is burnout. And you have an opening story for us.
2: Yeah, no, the story I I wanna tell is from shortly after I graduated college. Like I had just gotten done with kind of a a rough graduation period where I had to do these extra summer classes because of a, a credit issue, and had spent some time looking for a job, found a job opportunity, and had just finished my first day kind of meeting with the person I was going to be working with uh, editing this documentary. And after she and I had this meeting, I was going to go on a date with the person that I'd been seeing. And I remember very excitedly kind of telling her about this and and this person I was seeing and go on this date and got broken up with. (laughs) And all of the stress I had been feeling and that I had been building for a few months just kind of broke at once. And so I like got off the subway and was walking home and I had called one of my best friends from growing up who was often sort of there as a support system friend for me. And as I'm talking to her and I'm walking around my apartment, I see a mouse scurry out from under my bed. And I have a huge fear of mice, all rodents. Like even growing up as a kid, like I couldn't be close to, kids pet gerbils. Like I was so scared of all kinds of rodents. So this was my absolute worst nightmare. And I was just freaking out on the phone with her. And she was like, you know what, like I am booking you a flight to come out to California. You're going to stay with me for a few days and you're going to like rest and we're going to talk through everything. And that's just what we're going to do. And so we did. And I think it really helped in some ways. But the reason I actually wanted to tell this story was because I feel like that kind of solution that I had of some some friend with access to money being like, I'm gonna fly you across the country and you're gonna take a few days off work to stay with me. Like that is not something that, I don't I don't think I could do that today and so many people like can never do something like that and I don't think it like completely helped. So I, I share this story just to sort of say like, I think that solutions to burnout are different in every case and so, so hard to figure out and find. When I was reflecting on this episode, I was just like, I have a lot of examples of stories I could tell of when I feel like I hit absolute burnout. I don't have many stories of when I solved that in any way. And so I guess that is something I want to offer today is like, what do we do about burnout?
1: I just have one question, Jackson, for that really illuminative story, which is, did it help at the time? Was it a good stopgap? Like, was it a good finger in the hole in the dam? I think it was. I think I was dealing
2: with some very big things that it actually took me on the wrong path for a little bit. Um, just based on some like revelations from our, our late night talks with each other. But I think the the rest in the moment and having a friend kind of pick me up in, in that moment did help, even though I went back and did absolutely nothing to help with our, our rodent situation <laughs> and just like, well, it was in one of those times where I just I couldn't deal with it, even though I was terrified. So in that way, I'm always like, it didn't help because I didn't come back as this like warrior solving all the problems, which I guess I feel like is maybe what it should have done. But no, you're right. In the moment, it just gave me that that rest and support that I needed.
0: Jack, one of the things I really appreciate is you're pointing to like how difficult burnout is to fix. Yeah. How do you restart a fire when there's no fuel left? Like that is Mm. sort of the question. It makes me want to take the three of us to Etymology Corner this week. (gasps) Let's do it. It has kind of an obvious, maybe, etymology. It's burnout, right? It's the same thing. But it was, interestingly, it was coined in the 70s by a psychologist named Herbert Freudenberger. Freudenberger was speaking in particular about the helping professions and that they combine both high stress and high ideals. It makes you work really hard, right, for a really long time, and you just run out of energy. And it sounds like that's what your life was like, Jack, like when you were describing this graduation period or this period around graduation. You were working really hard for something you really valued and really wanted and burning yourself out. And the question then becomes like, then how do you restore this? How do you get more fuel? What gives you more fuel? Rest is one thing, which is what you suggested, but it's not always only rest. You know, a fire that doesn't burn for a while needs something else to be given to it. And, And I think you're right in every situation the thing that is needed is gonna be different and it requires a lot of discernment and the support of friends to to help us figure out what that is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that etymology is really interesting in terms of the helping profession specifically, that that's where it originally came from. Cause I think that's something, you know, we've seen a lot of in the last couple of years of essential workers, uh, healthcare professionals, especially just being absolutely burnt out That was, that was just something that really resonated when you shared that. Yeah. And you can see like the logic of it, right? Because it,
0: you can see how you might tend towards less self-care when you're working at something, you know, or believe is really, really important or valuable, right? Like I have to give my all, even if I'm sacrificing self-care because I believe in these ideals so deeply, but that's also what makes it so taxing and what makes burnout such a a risk in these, in this sort of work.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, we never want to burn out our audience, so we recap the reading so that y'all don't have to. And with three of us, you really don't have to. We're (laughs) going to 30-second recap it up. So can you count me in, please? Three, two, one. So Snape is completely abusive, and he essentially sets up Neville to kill his own toad. Luckily, Hermione helped Neville, so the toad lives. Draco is like, I'm dying. And then he like secretly winks behind everyone's back and is like, I'm not dying. I'm totally fine. But I'm really excited to get Hagrid fired. And then they go and Lupin is such a good teacher and Snape is abusive even when he doesn't have to be in the room and they learn how to get how to kill Boggerts. And that's exciting. And Harry doesn't get a try and Hermione doesn't get a try either. I didn't mention that Hermione is taking eight million classes. Oh, are there are a lot of things I didn't mention. I don't know why. Anyway, <laughs> we've we've got more recaps coming. Jackson, are you ready to do a better job than I did? I don't know about that, but I am ready to recap. Are you ready to try to do a better job? Yeah, sure. Competition. I will always try. Okay, on your mark, get set, go so malfoy is acting like
2: his arm is injured although it's not and so he's using that as an excuse to make ron and harry have to do his work for him and also taunt them a little bit about Sirius black and then uh neville is abused by snape as we talked about with the uh, with the uh, toad uh, and then when they're leaving potions ron notices hermione was not there and then she appears at the bottom of the stairs and he's very suspicious about that uh and then they go to defense against the dark arts and i'm already running out of time uh, bogart happens and neville does great and harry and hermione don't get a chance
0: so Can I good. that was i i jackson i despaired a little bit at second 23 and you you turned it you yeah. turned it around you really did you wrapped it, it was up a very succinct it ending. was great it was great
1: <laughs> matt are you willing i am okay on your mark get set go
0: So Malfoy comes in and he's malingering and then he makes other people do his work and they get very upset and there's a conflict and Snape is very cruel and tries to kill a toad uh, but Hermione helps and then they go to Dark Arts and on the way Hermione disappears but then she's back again and they go to Dark Arts and Lupin says let's go this way and he's he's throws chewing gum at, at Peeves and then they go and there's a Boggart and different people take different f- fears show up and terrorize the children uh uh but together as they all defeat the the Boggart and maybe kill it and then uh Harry and Hermione don't get a chance well done
1: <laughs> maybe maybe kill it <laughs> maybe kill it or does
0: it does it is it removed to like a different dimension different or realm. Is it, does it just give up and like disappear yeah I don't know
1: The obvious place to start for me is Snape's abuse. And I have a question for the two of you. Mm -hmm. Do you think that when Harry isn't in the room that Snape is as abusive? Like he's absolutely abusive to Neville, but it's like a Gryffindor class. Do you think when he's teaching Hufflepuff Ravenclaw or Gryffindor grade seven, he has people that he picks on in those classes Or is there something about the sight of Harry that, and I do think it could be about burnout, right? Like his whole life has been sort of ruined because he wants to save Lily Potter's kid and he's constantly risking his own life and it just puts him in a bad freaking mood. What do you think?
2: I mean, I think that's a fantastic question, because reading through this chapter, I was, you know, and this is not the first time I've had this thought, but I'm just like, why does he pick on Neville? Like, we get why he picks on Harry. I, there's not an excuse for it. I don't think it's, I, like, I don't agree with that at all, but we get why he does. So, yeah, Neville is really interesting, and I I don't know, I feel like I do remember teachers that would have particular kids that just sort of like set them off more than other ones. Like I would maybe have this teacher in multiple classes and so I could see that they were kinder and like just had more patience in other classes or with other students. And I don't really know what the explanation is there. I think you have a really good point that even just the sight of Harry looking like James can just like, you know, make Snape be on edge and then he takes it out more on Neville than Harry at times. And I I was thinking a lot in this chapter too about how, and. This is sort of extrapolating more to teachers in general because I don't know that I want to give this much leeway to Snape, but like just having so much that he is dealing with and that teachers deal with. Like you've got your own personal life stuff going on, you're not given enough resources, you're not paid enough, you've got all these annoying kids being so loud all the time while you're trying to do your job and guide them and whatever. And so it makes perfect sense to just be a little on edge. Like when I think back uh, to teachers that as a student, I thought they were mean, And then I think now as an adult about like what else they had going on in their lives, you know, maybe it doesn't always excuse some of the things they might have done, but it does make me sort of understand a little bit more how they could have been burnt out. And that's that was leading to them maybe not reacting in the ways they felt most proud of.
1: I mean, I you know, we have language for this now, and I don't think it excuses it. Right. But you would understand why Snape in theory could be triggered by Harry's presence. Right. In Harry's face, he sees simultaneously the man who bullied him in one of the most humiliating moments of his life. And he also sees the face of his friend who he loved and who he blames himself for killing, right? Like, you can understand why why this face might be deeply triggering to Snape and why he might not be his best. I can imagine a level of burnout when it comes to Harry Potter. And what makes it so confusing is, then why are you being so awful to Neville? Neville has nothing to do with any of this.
0: I mean, I I think the job itself is as a response to this loss in his past that he's trying to fix. I don't think that Snape grew up thinking one day I will be a a potions professor at Hogwarts. I think that he is doing this because he is trying to undo this traumatic event from his history or the traumatic events from his history. He's trying to, to somehow fix what went wrong with Lily. Right. And so he's in this job, not because he loves children, not because he loves teaching, not even because he loves potions, although he does, I think, love potions. (laughs) Right. He's doing it because his high ideal is not for the benefit of these kids. The high ideal, you know, to invoke the classic definition of burnout, the high ideal that he holds is I am going to redeem this mistake I made that led to my beloved's death. And so he will do anything, including a job he hates for that. But it bears out in the way burnout does. It bears out as resentment to all the folks around him, especially Harry, because Harry's face triggers him in that way. But also, you know, for a person who loves teaching, as you can see this later in the chapter, it was like Lupin helping a student who lacks confidence like Neville gain confidence. Like that's the most joyous thing you can do. It brings no joy to, to Snape because that's not that's not the ideal he's actually working for. It's not the thing that's stressing him out. Something else is stressing him out.
1: That's so helpful. That's so, so helpful that, yeah, his high ideal is such a long con and is so exhausting. That really helped me understand why it is possible that Snape is actually in a constant state of burnout, right? And then he watches this other guy who bullied him, you know, and is a werewolf come in and take the job he wants. and yeah.
0: I mean, again, this is this is a reason, not an excuse. You can see how he hates what he's doing, and he hates that what he's doing can't actually undo the thing he wishes he could undo, and that just makes him hate it more. But also more committed to trying. He's caught in this bind, and it's one, frankly, that, as you said, Dumbledore has put him in, and I think quite knowingly put him in, and that does make him sympathetic, even though it's not an excuse.
1: Lupin, I think, is another really interesting place to look at burnout because mm-hmm. I think. This might be one of the only places in the series where he gets described as looking better, not worse. Yes. Throughout the books, he just gets more tattered, more haggard, more, you know, withdrawn, skinnier. And this, you know, it looks like he'd had a few healthy meals, you know, and we know like he's in a place where he's being really well (laughs) taken care of. Wolf Bane is being made for him every month. And so, You know, he snuggled up as a cute little puppy for a few days every month, which actually sounds lovely. And other than that, he's eating well. He's housed housed in a place where people love and respect him. He's building confidence in students. He's good at his job. And it just really struck me because I always think that Lupin throughout the books is just on this trajectory of getting sicker and sicker and sort of worse and worse. But we see a bounce back here. And, you know, it just speaks to how many resources we need to not burn out, right? Like you, you do, you need a home and you need good meals and you need people who care about you and you need the medicine that you need and you need to feel like you're good at your job and have the support to be good at your job. And it's so nice to see Lupin just shine in this chapter for a moment.
2: Yeah, I agree. And and that particular line you referenced about him looking like he's had a few square meals, like really stood out to me as well. Especially because I feel like in the narrative, you know, once you know ultimately what happens, I think you look back on that line and it's supposed to mean like, oh, we weren't so close to the full moon, and so he's he's recovered. But really I I also saw more of what you were just describing of like he is in a place where he is being fed, like he doesn't have to worry about affording food. He he is housed and he's also got a, a position where like he can feel dignity because he has this job and he's getting to do something he's passionate about. And yeah, I, I love what you said about we need all of those things. Like we all need all of those different things in our lives. Yeah. Being a werewolf is
0: is not just a physical ailment. It's a social ailment. Right. And that's he's found like a mm. place here. Something about him being in that state conditions him or prepares him to recognize how to help these students face their fears. Right. Like he knows that fear is a social thing as well as a physical thing. And he, it's by placing them within a community that we're gonna do this together. We're gonna to pass it from person to person. We will be here with you, we'll help you, right? Like there's something he's learned from being a werewolf that helps him help these students teach them to face their fears in the way that he does in this chapter. So successfully in, in a way that reveals him to be such a capable and caring teacher.
2: I love what you've said about the Bogart in particular in the class, how they all do it together. Because in the, so many times I've read this chapter, like this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire series, I think, or I at least have the most memories of reading it as a kid and rereading and listening to it. And I don't think it's that impact. I don't think I've ever thought of that, of how they defeated it together. It wouldn't have happened if they hadn't all worked together. And that is such a a powerful takeaway there.
1: Yeah, it made me think about Molly in book Mm. five. Right, when Lupin is like, I'll go work on the bogger. And she's like, no, 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 I'll do it. And why Lupin doesn't say, well, really, we should do it together. Because Mm. the best way to fight a bogger is together. And, right, like, it was probably respect for Molly and, you know, being like, if Molly says she can handle it, she can handle it. And that is in and of itself lovely. But it just broke my heart. I was like, oh, like... I I mean, again, like burnout, right? This was a moment where Molly, when she wasn't so exhausted, probably could do it by herself. And just why not ask for help if help's around?
0: One of the things I was really thinking about as I read the Bogart scene in this chapter was what's really graceful and beautiful about the way this community comes together. I mean, partly, again, it's due to the urgency of the moment. Nobody asks why anybody's afraid of anything, they just know that they are and they'll respond together. That seems important because it's not making one justify one's anxieties or or to do their own emotional labor when they're already feeling burdened or burnt out. It's asking others to come in and, and provide support.
2: The asking part is really important, too. There's a line towards the end that really stood out to me when uh, Harry says how no one else seemed to notice that he didn't get a chance with the Bogart. And I was just really sitting with that of like how sometimes when I'm burned out, I feel like no one notices and I just want them to notice without me telling them. And also when you're burned out, sometimes it is really hard to ask. It's so hard. So trying to, I don't know, again, I'm like, what is the solution of like when you're really burnt out, push yourself more yeah. to ask? That's a tough <laughs> yeah. thing to say. Or like also as people around, it's similar to to the Molly Weasley and Lupin thing of like, he maybe recognized she did need help, but didn't want to take away that agency and like, you know, risk seeming like he was belittling her or something by offering the help. So it's it's such a delicate balance. To that end, I think creating a culture where asking for help
0: isn't stigmatized is part of what's needed to to address that, right? Because we do always need help. Great point. And I think it's in those moments when we we believe in something deeply and believe that we ought to be able to fix it. That's when we don't want to ask for help because that's where you get into the cycle of burnout, right? Being able to say, Mm -hmm. like, boy, this is hard. This thing that I believe in deeply is hard to accomplish on my own. And if you're within a culture where people do ask for help, then then you feel like you have partners in it. And that's one of the beautiful moments in the scene. Like right from the beginning, Lupin creates this culture. He says, we are going to help each other. We are going to do this together. We're going to assume that we need each other. And so there is no stigma in it. Although, you know, there is a little stigma because Harry wonders at the end why <laughs> why, why he doesn't get the chance to to battle the Bogart. even though I think he's a little bit grateful that he didn't also.
1: Yeah, and then in Snape's classroom, right, not only is there a stigma yeah. for help, it is ordered you know ron and harry are ordered to help draco as a form of punishment and then hermione is forbidden from helping neville so help is regulated like it is no longer helpful yeah Uh, hermione and neville get punished for it and ron and harry helping is a form of punishment
0: you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999.
2: That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.
1: Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
2: I want to circle back a little bit to what you were saying, Matt, about... The sort of the like the stigma around help, and how if we feel like we have to take on everything by ourselves, then we maybe are less likely to ask for help. And I feel like with the Bogart and Harry not having a chance, he just starts spiraling into this like, well, does Lupin think I can't do it? I want to prove myself. Why does he think that I can't do it? And we don't get Hermione's internal monologue, but like she didn't get to have a turn with the Bogart either. And she just briefly says, like, oh, I didn't get a chance to do it. But I I wonder a little bit about their different approaches to that, where Hermione's just like, ah, shucks like I didn't get a chance to do it and Harry's like what did it mean that I didn't get a chance to do it but I also want like why doesn't he recognize that it wasn't just him Hermione also didn't get a chance to do it I don't know that's always stuck with me of like Harry was just so obsessed with the fact that he didn't get to but Hermione also didn't so maybe it wasn't just about you Harry we find out it kind of was but then that also makes me wonder why didn't Hermione what did Lupin think that Hermione's fear was gonna be that he you know had her not have a chance
0: I think the answer to your question, Jackson, is partly why the bogart is best battled in community, which is that fear is really isolating, right? When you're afraid, you mm. feel very alone, and you may perceive yourself to be alone in ways that you aren't or don't need to be. One thing we have in my marriage that Colette and I say, when we're nervous about things or something, or or nervous about how we are being perceived personally, individually, like one thing we say is like, everybody's in middle school, right? Because I I remember middle school as being this time where I was super preoccupied with how I looked, like wh- how I was perceived by others, so much so I didn't realize that everybody else was just as preoccupied with themselves and not paying attention to me, right? And I feel like that's kind of what's happening with Harry here, like, all he can think about is like everybody must be wondering why i didn't get a chance and he's making him feel more isolated and more afraid of the thing that he's afraid of which is being revealed as afraid right whereas ron's probably thinking about how he how he defeated this giant spider
2: yeah wh- why aren't more people congratulating me for what <laughs> exactly, i just did Exactly, you know? like yeah yeah they're, they're, all, in
0: their they're own heads. all in their own heads
1: <laughs> i was awesome <laughs>
0: it, it makes me wonder what's going on inside of hermione's head like she says this outwardly
3: mm-hmm. but maybe
0: inwardly she's also thinking you know boy what did what did Lupin see in me that made him know I was not capable of battling the that I'm feeling so burnt out from all these classes that I'm not capable of battling the bogart at this time mm-hmm.
1: well, and I think we see evidence for one possible reading that Hermione is really emotionally injured by this because the only class that she doesn't get a perfect grade in hmm. is defense against hmm. the dark arts. And so it's possible that her confidence is really shaken in this moment that Lupin, this amazing teacher, didn't see it in her. When, of course, we know that that's not what it was, right? Lupin probably didn't want Harry to feel isolated, but he also didn't want the class to see Voldemort, you know, whatever. It was a call that Lupin made with the best of intentions and with lots of great experience and reasons. And, you know, I do think we see evidence that it actually hurts Hermione.
2: Yeah, I think I think you're right. Yeah, because she she struggles with it in the final exam. And in her head, she was probably like, this is the one thing I didn't have a chance to practice and everyone else did. And then and she does have a lot of stress on her shoulders. So of course, her Bogart was going to be very uh, because uh, it's McGonagall like failing her, right? Like that makes perfect sense as a manifestation for all of her worries. And I, I also, you know, like that the shows we keep saying, oh, Lupin's doing such a good job as a teacher here, but he's he still made those mistakes. And so I, I think that's also just an important thing to underscore, too, with how much every person has on their shoulders. Even when you're doing really, really great, you can still accidentally impact other people in a way you didn't mean to.
1: I wonder if they're mistakes or they're just judgment calls. And that, right, like in an imperfect world, no matter which way you choose, it's going to be bad, right? Like if Voldemort had come out or Dementor had come out, that would have deeply potentially scarred all the other students. And if Hermione's was about a time turner, this like big secret would have been revealed, Mm. right? And so I think it's just a calculated risk. And I, I don't, I don't think he necessarily made a mistake. I just think Everything has repercussions. Letting them go would have had repercussions. Yeah, I
2: I think that's a really important clarification of not being mistakes, but still having impacts that you you can't foresee on other people. Because in that same way, that we are all kind of in our own heads sometimes. And so, yeah, someone with with the best of intentions who didn't necessarily make any mistake at all can still cause some kind of a a negative impact on someone else.
0: So as our listeners know, we've been trying to pay special attention to the ways we can critically engage these texts. We believe that sacred reading practices are also critical reading practices, and we really want to uncover what is assumed and what's at stake in some of the way things are framed and described in this chapter. And in our pre-recording conversations, Jackson had a really great point. And so, Jackson, you want to help us think through one of the kind of critical engagements we might make with the chapter this week?
2: Yeah, so... We we've been talking a lot about the uh, Boggart in in this book and the way that it starts with uh, Neville uh, Lupin sort of coaches Neville with his biggest fear being Snape to imagine Snape wearing his grandmother's clothing and so then we see Snape appear and when Neville does ridiculous then Snape is dressed in a dress and you know a woman's hat with a handbag and all the kids are laughing and it's the funniest thing ever so this you know makes me a little uneasy because you know, there is nothing wrong with any person of any gender wearing whatever the heck that they want to wear. But it's it's about the intent and the impact in that. So sometimes I think about like Halloween, like if a man wants to dress up as a woman character for Halloween or like wear some kind of like cool dress situation, like whatever, that's totally fine. But if they're doing it in a way where like it's funny to make fun of women or to make fun of the idea of, someone with a more like masculine appearance wearing feminine attire like that's where i at least think that it can start being problematic in the ways that we are Telling men that they can't dress in any feminine way and, you know, like restricting their expression, restricting the expression of non binary people by continuing to have these two very binary, traditional, stereotypical type of gender roles and expressions. And, you know, little scenes like this where literally the point of this was to humiliate Snape. That was the intention here. Something like this would already make me uneasy. But now, of course, knowing what we know about J.K. Rowling's views of the world, Uh, made this a much tougher scene to read.
0: Yeah, I was really grateful for you bringing this to us, Jackson. Yeah, I think that your your point about intent being so important, I mean, the intent here is ridicule, so much so it's on the page, right? The spell Mm -hmm. is ridiculous, right? Like, so we see Snape wearing Neville's grandmother's, you know, accessories or clothes or whatever, and then we cry out, ridiculous right that is really kind of disturbing and upsetting given everything that we know and everything that's been revealed to us about the way that jk rowling you know fear mongers around trans folks it's upsetting and it's kind of a disturbing scene
1: yeah thank you so much jackson for bringing that to our attention So Jackson, we're going to do Lectio Divina now, and you have the honor of picking which sentence we're going to be treating as sacred. What sentence do you have?
2: The sentence is, everyone looked quickly at Professor Lupin to see how he would take this. To their surprise, he was still smiling.
1: Great. Okay, so step one of Lectio Divina is the context and the uh, literal meaning of this sentence. Jackson, do you want to tell us just the context of this? This is Lupin and Peeves, right?
2: Yep, so that is, Lupin is leading the class to the staff room where they're going to challenge the Bogart, and they have encountered Peeves in the way, and he's sticking gum into the lock or the keyhole or whatever, and Peeves starts singing that song, making fun of Lupin, and... Harry's sort of narrating as like wow peeves usually showed some respect to the teachers but he's being mean to to lupin and that's so that's so unexpected so the students are sort of waiting to be like how is professor lupin going to react to peeves being rude and disrespectful to him and then it turns out lupin is just smiling and we sort of see after this that he gets his own on peeves and pulls a prank back on him
1: <laughs> uh it's it is uh shining Lupin moment, in my opinion.
2: It really is. And I when I read this this time, I had a wonder of, um, you know, why is Peeves being disrespectful to Lupin if he's usually not to teachers? And I thought it could be one of two reasons. Either Peeves knows that Lupin is a werewolf and maybe this is supposed to be kind of indicative of some of the prejudice that Lupin faces. But then oh. I was like, I don't know, maybe Peeves remembers him from a student and how mischievous That's he was. And I he's always like think. I know he can play ball. He can take this. I'm going to, you know, go toe to toe with him.
1: Yeah, that's how I always took it. That it's like, you know, once a student, always a student. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the word loony comes from lunatic, which has to do with the moon. It derives from a it's an etymology that has to do with the moon. So like it's there is like a subtle thing about him being a werewolf and calling him Looney Lupin.
2: So he is taunting mm-hmm. him. He's taunting about him in that. a particular way. Yeah. It's a it's uh, I think I, he's so taunting I, him I think about it's that. kind of both. Like a, he's taunting both. him mm-hmm. about that, but it's still like he, he, he feels like he can because they've yep. probably, you know, yep. pulled pranks on each other before.
1: Yeah. Okay. Step two is when we think about what other stories or songs or, you know, movies this reminds us of. Allegory. Everyone looked quickly at Professor Lupin to see how he would take this. To their surprise, he was still smiling. I think it it reminds me of mary poppins the surprise when mary is like willing to be playful the kids have been raised in such a strict environment and then you know mary is willing to jump into a chalk painting and they're you know the kids will just spend a lot of times looking at each other like really
2: i like that too because even when Mary Poppins is being kind of playful, she still has that sort of buttoned up kind of strictness about her. It's just like a wink of the eye, you know, and that's a little bit how Lupin is here too. Like he even in playing the prank, he doesn't immediately do it. He's like, well, students, watch how I do this. This is a good spell to know.
1: Yeah, it, it's a little bit of chaos without danger. Mm. The kids always feel safe with Mary, even while she's doing these really outlandish things. Yeah, there's something beautiful about the adults in our lives when we were kids or just, you know, adults with kids who can somehow be playful and silly while still making kids feel safe. What stories does it remind either of you of?
0: The only thing I can think of Vanessa and Jackson is is the end of the Monty Python movie, The Life of Brian, (laughs) (laughs) when a bunch of people are being crucified and they're singing Always look on the bright side of life. Like, there's <laughs> something about like the persistence. He's like, he just says, keep smiling. When things are going bad, just keep smiling. And I don't have anything wise to say about that. But this, that image of Eric Idle like whistling and singing, always look on the bright side of life. When we, when you mentioned Lupin still smiling, uh, for some reason that popped in my head and now I can't get it out. Can someone help me make meaning of that?
1: Absolutely. That when someone, <laughs> Is trying to take power away from you. There are ways that you can just not let them, right? And they are crucifying you and that is awful. <laughs> and they are tormenting you in front of students on your first day of teaching and that is awful. And you shouldn't be put in that position, but smiling through it, not handing over all of the power is, I think, a wise and funny move.
2: I also thought of a song that is maybe similar in a little little bit of a way from the last five years, the song I'm Still Smiling, which and I don't remember too much of like the other lyrics or what it's about, but I, I am pretty sure it's just that at that point in the show, for the singer, like everything has just gone wrong. She's really feeling at rock bottom, but she's saying I'm still she's smiling. She's still
1: doing summer stock in Ohio and she knows her husband is cheating on her and he has just told her that he's not even going to stay for her birthday. And she says, see, I'm smiling. Oh, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> yeah. And
2: in that case, it's like, I mean, she's really actually very, very sad, but I, I think there is something to that as well of just like uh, what I always hear when I listen to that song is not, I'm still smiling, but I'm still here.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: I mean, and I think that sentence in conversation with the way that I read Matt's speaks to the like toxic positivity, right? Yes. Like, yeah. She is being trampled on by this man and the world. And she still feels like she has to try to be smiling. You complicated my reading of the dignity of singing while being crucified. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I do wonder about that a little bit with Lupin as well here. Even though the students aren't aware that he's a werewolf, he is still sort of the new teacher. And so he might feel a little bit of this obligation to like, not, you know, blow a gasket and and still look respectable uh, in that kind of way. And I feel like a lot of people particularly who maybe come from a background that gets stereotyped as like losing their temper or something, I think that could be part of what is at play in complicating this for Lupin.
1: Well, that leads us so nicely to step three, which is what does this remind us of in our own lives?
2: I think I really feel the first part of the sentence of the students looking at him to see his reaction because I am someone with just such a huge fear of authority. And so if there's any type of authority figure that is even just like coming near me, I think they're going to be mad at me. I think they're going to yell at me. I think I'm going to get in trouble. The other day I was at CVS with a few friends and it was like late at kind of late at night and we were being a little loud and a noise came on the intercom, which was just like a staff member being like, hey, we need another staff member in this place. But I I told my friend when I heard the intercom, I thought it was going to be them telling us to be quiet. (laughs) <laughs> These 30 somethings being slightly loud in the back. I thought that they were going to tell us that we were in trouble. Like so I very much feel the like waiting on bated breath something happens mm. that might like anger this teacher and what are they going to do? Maybe what are they going to yeah. do to us because they got mad.
1: Oof.
0: What it makes me think of is you know, I think I think I probably put a smile on my face in my professional life a lot. I feel like I have you know, as a as a pastor and a minister at Harvard's church, I have a fairly public role, and I, I'm aware of just being seen, and also I don't want to be seen as scowling a lot, right? Which is fine. I think that's just part of my responsibility, to be a friendly presence and to be warm and, and open and receptive to people. I think the thing that makes me think about my own life is how, like, I probably don't extend that courtesy as much to the people I'm closest to. Like, my family, they probably see me scowl and frown a lot more than people who are not nearly as beloved of me, <laughs> right? Like... That's probably rough for them they probably want to see me warm and smiling and open and receptive and inviting in the way that i'm willing to do or able to do for everybody else so that's what i got it got me thinking about
1: how about you vanessa it reminds me of moments where i feel as though someone has just somehow humiliated me whether or not that was their intention or whether or not that that is the like appropriate reaction And it feels like everybody is looking at you how to respond. The one that comes to mind is I had a boyfriend, you know, at a bar. He was playing pool with another guy and he was standing next to a table and I was a little further away and he said to me, hold my beer. And it felt like the whole room looked at me to see how I was going to respond. I'm sure they didn't, right? But it just, like, felt so high stakes. Like, am I going to hold this beer or not? And, like, having to do that quick calculus of, like, do I laugh this off or do I take a stand? Those are always just really difficult moments. Like, what do you let roll off your back? And what do you say? No, you can't talk to me like that. Yeah. Especially when people are looking. Yeah. So step four is what does this make us feel called to? And that's not just the sentence, but this lovely conversation that we've had. So everyone looked quickly at Professor Lupin to see how he would take this. To their surprise, he was still smiling. You know, I
2: have been thinking a lot about what you both were saying was sort of normalizing asking for help and and not questioning or casting any judgment when someone does. And I, I think that's something that I really want to work on in my life and in the communities that I'm a part of. That way, you know, someone doesn't feel like they have to just like still be smiling in this toxic positivity way or feel like no one else is seeing what they're going through. I I think that idea has really helped with a lot of, you know, I started the the episode talking about what are the solutions to burnout? And I don't think there will ever just be one solution. But I think this idea of just being a little bit more okay asking for help, even when maybe you just want it and don't even need it in a huge way, it hasn't gotten to the point of burnout, but also being there for others. And yeah, just the whole culture of like, it's okay to ask for help and no one's going to question or judge you for it i i I like that i want to try to lean into that more
0: yeah just following on my last comment about sort of not smiling as much at home as i do in my professional life it it makes me on the one hand grateful that i that i can kind of let my guard down a little bit and take the mask off at home but just thinking about in this scene where all the children look to lupin and want to see how he's going to react just to be really aware that like how i react to things really does impact the people around me and and I'm grateful to be able to put down my mask, but I also should should pay attention maybe to keeping a a warm demeanor <laughs> with the people who deserve it. So yeah, I think that's what it's calling to me in, in my life.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm torn. I just had this conversation with my younger brother where we were discussing whether or not there should be a place where you're allowed to totally let your guard down, hmm. except when you're alone this question of like being yourself or trying and being your best self, right? Because exactly to your point, Matt, right? I think that what we risk doing when we say things like let our guard down is being our worst selves around the people who are around us the most and who we love the most. And yeah, the only answer that I can think about that is like having, even having boundaries, you know, with the people who you love so that you can take care of yourself to be your best self even around them. I think I just, I want to reflect on boundaries more.
0: I mean, I, I think it's related to this question of burnout, right? I mean, I've often reflected why I'm less patient with my kids than I am with co-workers sometimes, right? And it's because the work is, is so much more important to me. Like, I want to be present to my children all the time, even when I am not, like, don't have the energy to, to be present in the way that I ought to. One of the interesting things about boundaries is that boundaries are not barriers, right? They can be crossed and we have to think about how and why we cross right. them, right? But also just like being able to articulate what you need to the people who you love, right? And so like when I'm out of energy to just be able to say to my kids, like, I need some space, right? I <laughs> I need some space because that is so much better than snapping, right? Yeah. It's so right. much better than actually giving the scowl or losing the patience, yeah.
1: Well, thank you both so much for this really lovely Lectio, Davina. And Jackson, thank you so much for that great sentence.
2: Yeah, thank you for the great conversation.
1: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality
2: fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.
1: Our voicemail this week is from Amy.
3: Hi Matt and Vanessa. I was just listening to your wrap-up episode of book two and your discussion about the love charm that Lily Sacrifice places on Harry. And I was thinking about how Harry has to go back to the Dursleys every year to keep that love charm strong. I think it would have been far more compelling if Harry and Dumbledore realised that Harry being accepted and loved by the Weasleys actually provided far more protection than living in a loverless family with somebody who's blood related. And since there's such a focus on a mother's love throughout the series, I think Molly is a much better placed to take up that mantle from Lily than Petunia is. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and whether a uh, found family can be more important and more powerful than blood family. Oh, I love this voicemail.
1: Me
2: too. We all love this voicemail. Amy, thank you so much. I mean, I, I could not agree more. And uh, please definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't feel like we ever really get, like we definitely get hints of how Harry has this found family and how much the Weasleys care for him. Or not just hints, like that's very clear, but the idea of that potentially being stronger or serving him more than the the blood connection i don't feel like is ever super explicit and i would have loved if it were cuz i totally agree
1: especially until voldemort rises again yeah right mm, like yeah. when voldemort has like been reembodied and whatever like specific legal definition of the magic of like, you have to be in the house, you know, but the psychological abuse until that point is so much worse than the added risk. I I just think that this really complicates all of that in such an important way.
0: And it's just, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, And thank you again, Amy, so much, because it's just such a great example of exactly the sort of critical reading that we are, that we're trying to engage in with, with these books, because, Amy was able to see, like, oh, there's a subtle preference here for biology. There is there is not even a subtle one, a really obvious one that you can just not notice because you've read it so many times. Right. But Amy says, but what about Found Family? And then we can immediately see how the books might have been different or how we might have differently read or could differently read The Love of the Weasleys as protective over Harry in a way that's so revelatory and so interesting. So thank you so much, Amy.
1: It is now time for us to honor members of our community who have been loved and lost. Andonetta Petra, who was 90, a beloved Nene who was generous and full of love. Sandra Harley, who was 63 and was generous and loving and a mother to many. Mark Mason, who was 59, a father, mentor, and friend. Joyce Golaski, who was 72, a rabbi, a hiker, a mentor, and an activist. William Bisbee, who was 71, and a devoted poppy to his grands. And Zach Ayers, who is 29, a friend to all and a free spirit. May their memories be a blessing to us all. It is now time for us to offer blessings for characters in the chapter we read today. Jack, would you like to go first?
2: Sure. Yeah, I uh, a lot of times with this, I like to choose maybe like a more minor character in the chapter, but I just went with my my number one this time, which is Lupin. I was just thinking a lot about how, yes, he is back at Hogwarts he's so taken care of and there's a lot of good going for him but also being back at Hogwarts is filled with so many reminders of the friends that he lost and at this point in time who he thinks maybe betrayed him and and caused him to lose some of those friends and so I, I just feel like that's a that's a lot to be grappling with and a lot on one person so my my blessing for Lupin is yeah just sort of acknowledging
1: that to bless Neville for the moment in which he thinks that his ineptitude is going to result in Trevor's death. I constantly worry that my ineptitude is going to cause harm to the people who I love and the creatures who I love, be it psychological, emotional, or physical, and that like acute fear of you are going to make me murder my toad. And this can be like a side blessing for Hermione, who's like, I am not going to let you be in that position. She disobeys like direct orders from a teacher and she's like, I don't care. Like, I'm not going to make you murder your own pet. But oh my God, poor Neville. Yeah. I feel bad when I accidentally step on my dog's paw. So, Neville, I'm so sorry. I see you. I love you. And I'm so sorry this mean man has so many issues that Dumbledore lets him abuse you.
0: Well, I'm glad I'm going last because I'm casting a wide net this week. I'm basically blessing every other character (laughs) in the chapter, more or less. I would like (laughs) to bless the Gryffindor third years, just for the way they respond in this moment with the bogart. I mean, they could have responded a lot of ways. It's it's a, a real situation, a practical lesson. It's not... It's not just an imagined thing. They have an actual ballgirt in the room and their actual fear is being manifest toward them, but they trust their teacher who does a great job and they work together and, and they find success in the end. And that's great. So blessings to them.
1: Next week, we'll be reading book three, chapter eight, The Flight of the Fat Lady through the theme of respect.
0: And Vanessa, you are telling us a story, right?
1: I am. Just as our reminder for those of you who would like to join us on Patreon, today, we convince Jack to stay and talk about the nature of boggarts. Where do they go when you laugh at them? How do they feel? This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and we are edited and produced by the wonderful AJ Uramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACast.
0: Thanks this week to Amy, who left us such a brilliant voice memo, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Jackson Bird, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, Stephanie Balsell, and all of you who sent in the names of those you have loved and lost.
1: Thank you, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. Go by sorted, everyone, <laughs> and go listen to cocky ride home
2: yay thanks thanks so much you two
1: every time i read the series i love lupin more right actually i yeah. feel like i did one reread where i i had more complicated feelings <laughs> <than most
2: part. laughs> i appreciate your honesty